And it looks like you can't keep a good podcast down. Thanks so much for tuning in this week, everybody, to The Highway. I'm really excited about our guest this time. I have been reading horror since I can remember. I think I got a copy of Stephen King's It when I was about nine years old. Way, way too young to be reading that book. So when I saw a book on the shelf that had a quote from Stephen King saying it was the scariest thing that he's ever read, well, I had to pick it up and tell you what, it was a good decision on my part because I got to be friends with Mr. Paul Trembley, who turned out to be a sword fan, and well, the rest is history. We're going to talk all about it, but if you like what you hear this week, you can follow where you can follow, subscribe where you can subscribe, and if you want to go a little bit above and beyond and help support us at our Patreon page at The Highway with Kyle Shutt, you can join one of our three patrons that we have, Mr. Bob Mavity, Mr. Mike Young, Mr. Bob Bechtal. Join up on the Patreon and you can get early access to next week's episode, fun cover songs, all kind of goofy stuff. We've got no sponsors, we've got no ads, and I like that just fine because that means we get to do things my way. The Highway. Hey, what's up, buddy? Hey, Kyle. Glad to be here. Uh, yeah, thanks for being here, uh, Paul Trembley, everybody. Uh, uh, auteur. Wait, are you an author? Are you a writer? Are you a... Yeah. Uh, what, what, what's your terminology? Sure. Writer. <laughs> author. Man of mystery. I don't know if there's a real distinction. Man of mystery. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, for those that don't know, Paul Trembley is one of my favorite authors. Um, I actually found out about you, uh, much like I found out about Clive Barker. Uh, through a Stephen King quote. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, I, th- I don't know where it came from or where I saw it, but uh, when A Head Full of Ghosts uh, came out, yeah, I saw that uh, Stephen King had written a, a very complimentary uh, recommendation on the cover, and I was like, well, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. So oh, yeah. uh, I did, and I read it, and uh, it was a fantastic book, and I've, I've read everything that you've written since then. And, uh, yeah, it's well, a pleasure to have you on. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, I know that, that Stephen King sort of, like he tweeted about the book and ended up getting put on the cover sort of. Changed a lot of things for me, and uh, we'll have to. I have to say, we have to say it now, right? I have to say hi to our our common friend Kenny Irwin. Um, What's up, Kenny? Big Kenny, <laughs> Big Kenny Boston yeah. represent. <laughs> we, we're, I definitely want to ask you uh, more about him sure. in a minute. But um, <laughs> the the reason I brought you on because this uh, this podcast is mostly um, music oriented, but uh-huh. uh, in every almost every one of your books, I don't know about every one, but you always have uh, some lyric snippets. Uh, before each chapter and, and here and there, and you are a music fan, um, and so I definitely wanted to, to yeah, just kind of ask you some music questions. But before we get into that, um, why don't you tell the people that that might not know just a, a little bit more about where you came from and how you ended up writing? Sure, uh, you know, so you mentioned Boston. I've you know pretty much a hopeless lifelong New Englander. I've lived in and around Boston pretty much my whole life. Um, yeah, and how I mean how I came to writing, I won't do the full story, but it was sort of I guess a little bit strange compared to, I guess, most writers, because, you know, I wasn't an English major or anything like that. Um, I, I went to college, uh, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, and back then, I don't know, people chose college for silly reasons, or at least I chose college for silly reason. I liked their basketball team. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I was a math major. Like, you know, I was just, that was what I was best at, you know, just sort of like floundering around. When I went to grad school for, for math, because I had nothing else going, um, two years later, that's why I fell in love with reading, which is sort of weird, you know, to be the math major who, who fell in love with reading. But part of it was like my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, Lisa, 
bought me Stephen King's The Stand right before I went off to grad school, or the summer before I went off to grad school. Um, you know, grad school is different than college. You know, you're not <laughs> partying as much as you were in college. Yeah. You know, I have to be somewhat a little bit more serious. But also, like, I was doing the long-distance relationship thing, so I spent just a lot of time alone in my little apartment reading books, and that's I fell in love with reading. And, um, and actually, at the same time, I was trying to teach myself how to play guitar. So for most of the rest of the 90s, my my dual creative hobbies were, you know, trying to write music and also trying to write these weird stories. And I figured out I was a better writer than musician, so that's what I stuck with. <laughs> you try try to write some lyrics, and three hundred pages later, you're like, "Oh crap!" Oh, I what suck happened? at writing yeah. lyrics. I mean, yeah, I'd be. I I don't know. I I like to think I could be someone's below average rhythm guitar player. That's <laughs> <laughs> surprising. You never uh, would take a stab at writing lyrics. I I know some other authors um, who actually. Uh, did try to pin, like uh, Michael Chabon. I know he um, huh. wrote some lyrics for some people and liner notes and stuff. But um, yeah, and uh, so when did you meet uh, Kenny? Because I, I, I definitely want to talk about our, our mutual friend uh, Kenny Irwin <laughs> for just for a minute. Sure, yeah, yeah, Kenny of oh my god, why is my brain broken? Uh, the hell is the name of his band? Sorry, Kenny, Mother, my, I'm old. Motherboard. Now. Motherboard. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kenny was just like a, a lifelong friend. Well, actually, I mean, he's uh, he's like best friends with my younger brother Dan. Um, you know, so growing up, Dan and Ken were hanging out. And I think the best part, if anyone's listening to this and knows Kenny, when I met Kenny, when he was like, probably like a freshman or sophomore in high school, he was all about breakdancing and, and into hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Now. If you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kenny, not that there's anything wrong, obviously, with either of those uh, music choices or, or dancing styles. But yeah, Kenny's a good dancer. Oh, it still is. So no, he, he's just a funny character. It's just been, you know, obviously, like I said, best friends with my brother forever. So just by osmosis, I got to uh, got to take in a lot of Kenny. <laughs> That's really funny. And, you know, um, you're mostly known for being a, a horror uh, writer. Um, but your first two novels were actually more of like a, a gumshoe kind of detective, uh, private eye, sort of a Raymond Chandler kind of vibe. Um, and I, I I love those books. and uh, But they, they have a real unique spin because the main character is narcoleptic. And it's written in a really hilarious way because it it just you go from like telling one part of like a linear narrative to the, the next paragraph. It's like I woke up four hours later. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there. it's really funny. Yeah. But that that character, um, and we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but uh, is actually based on uh, a roommate of Kenny's back in the day <laughs> that actually was narcoleptic, and I didn't know that um, until I think Kenny brought it up, and then uh, Kenny said that he kind of had a hard time reading that book because a lot of those stories that actually kind of did happen yeah. in, in a way uh i mean not, they're fictionalized obviously but um right. but I, th- I just thought that was a really unique uh, and, and fun connection uh, between those books because then I, could, I i read them in a totally different way after knowing that <laughs> yeah i know that's weird that's funny i forgot like uh, i forgot about that aspect of it that you, you know especially as the connection to kenny i don't know i mean I like, you know, like most writers, I think, you know, I'm always taking from what happens around me and from real life. So it's, I think it's always weird for my friends and family uh, to read any of my books because there's so much stuff that's in there that's from real life. But at the same time, you know, it's definitely it, it's not stories about those things. But, you know, I understand that friends and family have a hard time, like uh, dissociating from that. You know, not like saying, oh, like they disavowed the book or anything, but like, you know, my brother was worried that if my dad read a head full of ghosts, he would think the father was him. Even though I took a lot of stuff from like my family's life. It's like, no, that's not, that's not, you know, our father, he, he'll be fine. So yeah, you, I know that, that that's gotta be weird for everybody who knows stuff, but yeah. Uh, 
my narcoleptic private detective Mark Genovich. And actually those two books are, are being re-released in, in 2021, The Little Sleep in January, um, and No Sleep to Wonderland in, in April. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like part of it was, you know, when I wrote those books, I was in my mid to late thirties with young kids. So, you know, I was living vicariously through my brother, Dan and Kenny, who had all these wild stories about, you know, living in Cambridge and, you know, going to the shows that, you know, for those few years and times that I really couldn't go to just because, you know, my kids were so young. Um, and yeah, and some wild stories about roommates and other people that they knew. And I don't know, it's all grist for the mill. It all gets to go in the books. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just thought they were so unique. Uh, just, yeah, I've, I've, I love a good mystery novel too that just kind of has that has the payoff too. Sometimes uh, mm-hmm. you, you never know what you're going to get by the end, but I, I always really enjoyed those books. But, um, well, but thanks, what, what what um, what caused the the turn into horror? Was it just a do stories just kind of naturally come to you and you like gravitate toward that, or was horror something that you kind of grew up with and always kind of wanted to take a stab <laughs> take a stab at? <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> uh, I think a little bit of both. Uh, you know from some of my earliest memories in terms of like, I hate the word consuming media, but yeah. or the phrase I should say, but you know, my earliest memories of like watching movies and stuff was, you know, we had a program in, in Boston called creature double feature on Saturdays, you know, and it, they would show two movies. Usually the first was Godzilla and the second movie was, you know, it was more like a straight up horror movie. And I was a scaredy cat. So that, you know, I, I, I was there for Godzilla <laughs> and the second <laughs> movie would give me nightmares. You know, my brother, Dan, who I've already mentioned is a huge horror fan too. So we mm-hmm. bonded over that. Um, so, you know, when I first started writing, um, you know, I didn't really question it. It was just, this is where, like, this is where my interests lie. So actually most of my, when I first started writing, it was almost all short stories and all those short stories were horror stories. But for whatever reason, in my earliest writings, when I tried to do novels, they tended to be more like darkly humorous. Um, I don't know, which kind of makes more sense to me now because, you know, horror and humor are so closely related, right? Mm-hmm. You have you can have one or two reactions, one of two reactions to the horrors of real life is to be terrified or to, you know, just laugh sort of satirically. Right. Um, so for the crime novels, I just happened to have uh, like this weird idea for them. And that was actually the hard part because I wasn't really steeped in crime. And, you know, in a lot of ways I felt like a, <laughs> a faker because, you know, I wasn't like, you know, I'd read crime clearly, but I wasn't like this big crime fan. And I was being introduced with these first novels as Paul Tremblay, crime writer. <laughs> like, oh, who's that? So... You know, when I was able to write A Head Full of Ghosts, like, you know, four years after those books, it felt like, you know, I was returning home in a way. So, I don't know, I'd, I'd still like, I'd like to think of myself as, you know, just a writer, meaning, you know, I could write whatever story comes to mind, but, you know, my interests usually sort of go dark, so that's where I end up. There, I mean, the horror in your books is usually just kind of part of the backdrop, too. You know, it's like you, you write very human stories. And um, they're, they're definitely infused with, like, a lot of emotion and things like that. And it's almost like, uh, yeah, the, the horror itself is just, um, yeah, it's just part of the backdrop that uh, that these people mm-hmm. get knocked around in. Um, I, I loved uh, uh, Cabin at the End of the World uh, just because I, I, just, I like novels that take place in, in just one place. It's almost like a play, you know, like <laughs> yeah. I could totally like as I was reading that book, I could totally see it um, being put. Um, to the stage or even the screen uh, has anything been um, optioned for either stage or screen yeah my first I mean that's so cool of you to say that I really appreciate it and, you know I've never written a play but while I was writing Cabin at the End of the World I was sort of imagining that I was writing a play that you know it's taking place in this one cabin outside of the you know, the things they see on TV uh, yeah Head Full of Ghosts has been optioned Cabin's been optioned Head Full of Ghosts is definitely the closest you know I probably would have filmed this year had yeah. pandemic not shut down the world i mean that's the smallest of problems 
you know, consider, you know, all things considered. But, uh, yeah, hopefully in 2021, you know, that might make it to the screen. We'll see. I don't know. The only, well, I mean, in the list of, you know, fucked up uh, industries, I don't know what music probably might be the top, you would probably argue, but I can't, you know, if there's anything more screwed up than publishing, it's definitely Hollywood. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, ho- there's a lot um, more. It's um, yeah, there's the the. I don't know what the. There's a lot more like uh, guidelines you have to follow within Hollywood. I feel like it's it's much more like controlled. Whereas you, I don't I don't know about publishing, but in yeah, in music, it's just you're on your own. There's no unions. There's no nothing. It's right. just like you know we're out there. Uh, it's like the Wild West. Um, yeah. Like that. Is that kind of what publishing is like? Or I, I have uh, no idea how that goes. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, with my Hollywood experience is very somewhat limited and anecdotal, but like I had a friend, I'm sure he wasn't the one, uh, Chuck Wendig, who's a really good writer who I'm sure he's not the first one to say this, but I thought this really rang true. He said in publishing, it's no, 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 until it's yes. Finally. (laughs) And in in Hollywood, it's the opposite. It's yes, 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 yes. Until it's no, like everyone, like any phone call you take with a producer, like they're your pal. They're so excited. Uh-huh. And you get off the phone, you're like, wow, that went really well. And then, like, you never hear from them again. It's just so bizarre. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I don't get it. So, I mean, again, you know, publishing has got plenty of its own issues, believe me. Um, you know, I'm fortunate to be in a place now where you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm in a much more stable place. Jesus, knocking all the woods that uh, <laughs> more writers are, you know, stable insofar as like my editor has been there for a long time. You know, she's not going anywhere. Like with my detective novels. I was with a different publisher and my acquiring editor left like six months later and I was basically screwed. I mean, yeah. if the editor leaves, you're sort of toast because the new editor that takes over, I'm, they're very competent editors. They're going to help your book be a better book, but they don't have a personal stake on right. whether it sells or not. Um, you know, like most things in today's, you know, 2020 capitalist world, you know, the sales teams get involved, et cetera. Um, but, in, you know, in some ways I feel somewhat insulated from that with my, publisher just because my editor is so awesome and um you know she takes care of all those you know worries that you know for me um but yeah hollywood's weird i don't know how i got off on this rant but yeah those are the (laughs) it's two very strange industries yeah it's not unlike the music industry whereas if you sign to this you know major label that you know has a lot of money backing you and then you have this a and r person that's you know fighting for you you know and everything like that and then all like six months later that whole team is gone and yes, yeah, so you get assigned to somebody else, and all of a sudden, it's, you just get shuffled around, and it's a, it, it can be, it'd be a total nightmare. That's that's funny. I, I didn't really realize that it was the same with editors and publishing houses and stuff like that too. But a lot of similarities there. Yeah. That's now in Hollywood, it definitely it also seems like just way more people wanting to have a say in what actually happens, at least from the story side of things. Uh huh. Um, you know, just in talking, I haven't written very many screenplays, and I haven't, certainly haven't had one put through. But in dealing with the screenwriters who've been trying to adapt my stuff, like they almost have an impossible task. They have to, you know, they have to satisfy the producers. And if there's multiple sets of producers, there's all these different people are going to give you notes. And then if a studio is involved, you know, they're going to have people give notes. <laughs> and I'm sure like all these differing opinions start to overlap and contradict. And then I don't know. It definitely. What, what do they it, call it? It feels too? to me like a, a too many chefs in the kitchen kind of thing. Yeah, and the, what is it um, called? The, the the test groups that they. Oh they yeah, what are they, they called? Focus that, groups. Right. Yeah, yeah. When, Focus whenever, groups, yeah. yeah, they have to. Like, why do they get a say? This is weird. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I haven't got to that point. <laughs> Where I mean, I know it seems to be that so many of my you know favorite movies, especially from recent years, I'm sure there are, are I'm sure there are counterexamples, but it seems to me like so many of my favorite movies are all sort of independently produced and written and directed by the same person. And I don't yeah. think there's any. I don't think 
it doesn't take a genius to be like, well, because this person telling the story got to tell the story without having to have other people who aren't necessarily writers or directors intercede on how to tell the story. I don't know. Yeah. Makes but, sense. But I, you know, I will freely admit, I also know like practically nothing about <laughs> making movies. So I'm just like the whiny writer. <laughs> you will soon. You, you, I have a feeling that you will know way too much about making movies pretty soon. Uh, <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I don't want to talk about it, but we have to talk about uh, the pandemic. Obviously, yeah. stop stop the whole world. Um, I'm <laughs> I'm sick of hearing about it. But we, uh, but you wrote a book about a pandemic. Well, I wouldn't call it a pandemic because it's more like a, a, a local epidemic, I guess. That's correct. But yeah. um, but during, I mean, I mean, you wrote the book over what the course of like two years or something like that, and then submit it for publishing and everything, and then <laughs> and then Corona hit, like before yeah. it even came out. Uh, and wow, like what you you can say what you want i guess about yeah sure but, but yeah I, so i did want to i did want to ask though like what what kind of like weird fan blowback did you get from people that thought you like <laughs> cranked it out in two weeks or something like that you know like did you have any like kooks like that um so i i really try my hardest to avoid the kooks so that would mean like i don't read my amazon reviews and i don't read reddit threads and i don't <laughs> read goodreads reviews and i i sort of learned the hard way smart though. so i'm somewhat yeah. insulated from that Although, like, just being online, you know, you can't avoid it. You know, people tag you and yeah. weird, you know, negative reviews sometimes. But, yeah, I mean, so Survivor Song, it's about an outbreak of a super rabies virus in Massachusetts. I'm glad you pointed out that it's really an epidemic and not a pandemic. But I totally get if people read the book because everyone who's reading the book are reading it now. Yeah. And so, like, you can't help but think of COVID. And, you know, I started the book in July of 2018 and finished it in September of 2019. So I had no inkling of what was going to happen. Um so yeah, it's been a, I don't know, just an extra weird experience. Um, partly because my, I hate doing research, Kyle. <laughs> Can I admit that? <laughs> so I have my I have my sister help me with a lot of the medical research and what the local response would be, because uh, my sister uh, is a nurse at one of the biggest hospitals in Boston, and it was amazing. I got to work on this book. You know, usually it's such a you know working on a book is in some ways a lonely enterprise, but you know when you find ways where you get to actually work with other people, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, so here it was, I got to do research with my sister. It was amazing. You know, it meant a lot to me. And then when the, as the book was getting ready to come out, it, the book sort of got tied up with, you know, my super concerns and ongoing worries about her health and safety because, you know, she's in the thick of it. Um, yeah, so it was weird. I don't know, but, you know, hopefully there's a light. <laughs> I don't know how long the tunnel is, but hopefully, hopefully we're seeing a light. And my sister included, she's actually getting uh, the vaccine tomorrow. And she sounded... <laughs> Like excited for like the first time this year, really. Man, so, I, I can't imagine what those people are going through. Um, yeah. But but in the book though, um, that you got a lot right. I wouldn't say you got anything <laughs> wrong. Um, yeah. But it, reading it when you're you kind of at the end, I don't want to spoiler alert anyone that sure. hasn't read Survivor Song yet. Please uh, go listen to something else for five minutes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> your numbers were. Um, pretty accurate for the region, you know, but, but mm. reading it, um, at the time, uh, I was like, oh man, he was way off. Uh, <laughs> if you do that, was there anything that you were surprised at that was, that ended up different than how you imagined it being written or, I mean, as you were writing it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard, except I've really tried to not compare like the illness of the book to what's in real life. But, True. you know, that said, um, I don't know. I think, well, one of the things that made it, I think, feel like really, holy crap, holy crap, this is a lot like COVID was because of my sister. I mean, 
uh, I had put in like a text exchange she and her coworkers had had in the book verbatim in 2014 when they thought that they were going to have to take, um, when they thought they were going to be, you know, all of a sudden have a swell of Ebola patients. You know, yeah. In 2014, there was an outbreak in the U.S. And, um, you know, that was the first time I'd heard, you know, them talking about PPE and, uh, you know, not having enough and not, uh-huh. you know, yeah. not being prepared. And, I don't know. My sister and I have talked a lot about the healthcare system. So I've known for years and years, you know, through her that, you know, it's just a shitty system and we're not prepared for something terrible to happen. So, I mean, all that stuff was because of her. I mean, mm-hmm. the two things that I quote, I guess I sort of predicted, I didn't think were hard to predict. One was that, you know, given uh, the, who the president was that, you know, the response would be shitty. You know, if anything, yeah. I, I definitely underplayed how shitty the response would be. And, <laughs> You know, I, I really, for actually four novels now in a row, like a, one of my obsessions has been like the effect of misinformation on on everybody uh, um, or and also just the glut of information. So, you know, in the cabinet at the end of the world, which we talked about briefly, there's a question as to whether the invaders are are, you know, just people who have consumed a lot of misinformation or, or people who consider themselves uh, targeted individuals. You know, and, and that sort of plays out in Survivor Song as well, where there's sort of this, you know, ultra-white conspiracy theorists that have racist theories about the virus. And again, I didn't think that was hard to predict. Uh, yeah, you were right on the thing. money with that one. Yeah. Yeah, like, I think <laughs> the only thing, again, is like I had no idea how mainstream that would become. It, it's it been really disheartening to, to witness, yeah, yeah the rise of um, these fucking morons. I don't have a nice way to put it. Um, yeah. But... You know that's that's fine. Uh, thanks for talking about it. Um, I uh, <laughs> we we kind of skipped over uh, disappearance of Devil's Rock and um, one, but kind of getting back to it, um, which is kind of one. Of, it's it's a slow burner of a story. Uh, it's yeah. it's a little, little bit different than the rest because it's does, there's a a little twinge of uh, paranormal, uh, yeah, in it, but yeah. um, it's mostly a very human story. Uh, but what I love about it is that you brought two of the characters back. Um, from that book in, in Survivor Song. And I picked it up immediately uh, because of your little uh, colloquialisms that they say or, or whatever, nice. uh, you know, and um, that I was just... Because uh, uh, Stephen King is obviously uh, famous for that. Um, the, but whenever, whenever I was growing up and reading King, it was almost like a, an unspoken thing. that you, There was no internet with, like, YouTube videos explaining the whole multiverse. There wasn't even right. a, the term uh, multiverse uh, uh, back in those days. You just kind of had to read every Stephen King book and put the puzzle pieces together yourself, and I thought that was really right. fun. Was that intentional, or, or did, that, did it just kind of, like, come up? Because all your stories kind of take place in the same region, so far, anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe a little—I think, like, a little bit of both. Like, when I was writing the book— um, I really knew what the beginning was and what the end was. So this is typically me with any book. And then I have to figure out how to get from point A to point Z. Mm -hmm. So I knew at some point in the book that I wanted uh, Ramola and Natalie to come across some like young zombie experts a little bit to serve the reader to like almost like be a wink for the readers. Like, yeah, you know, we know that people would be comparing what's going on to zombies. Uh, And also maybe a little bit of comedic um, break because it is a pretty you know, stressful book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but what ended up happening was like, Oh, I already have a couple of, uh, a couple of zombie experts that I use in another novel. That'd be really cool to bring it back. And they'd be four years older. Um, and you know, so just that little idea, um, I don't know. If, I hope it makes, you know, the book better, not just because there is this connection and you can certainly read the book without having read disappearance of devil's rock. Totally. Um, and, you know, I enjoyed that, like, when I actually sat down, when I actually did write the book and I got to their parts, I thought it was kind of cool to have 
the juxtaposition of the two friendships, right? Because the main friendship is between Ramola and Natalie. You know, they're adults and they've been friends for a while and they've had the ups and downs. Then you have these two teens where, you know, when you're teenagers, uh, even late teenagers, your, your, your friendship is so intense and, um, and sometimes almost irrational in, in like what you would do for each other, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So I thought, you know, it ended up being, I hope sort of it worked that way that I got to compare those friendships that way. I, I really enjoyed that. I don't want to talk about, uh, their, uh, their ultimate fate, but, uh, it was, it was really, uh, it was, it was, it was special to come across that in the book. So thank you for doing that. Thanks, man. Um, and, uh, but going back to devil's rock though, I, I love that it is a real rock that, <laughs> that, <laughs> that you post about sometimes that I've seen. I was like, Holy crap. Um, yeah, that that whole national uh, forest or whatever um, is actually real. You can go there. Like one of these yeah. days, there's there's going to be the uh, the Paul Tremblay tour uh, <laughs> bus you can take. Uh, yeah, all around New England. Um, that uh, is That'd that. Cool. I mean, is that kind of? Um, I was going to say like the the towns that you write about are, are mostly fictitious, right? But they're just supposed to be kind of these just average like kind of New England suburbs. Yeah. Well, I mean. In some way, I would actually say, no, I tend to sort of oh, take, okay. I'm sort of taking the places as are. Like I might do, like in Devil's Rock, I call the town Ames. I don't know why I changed the name, but I, I basically described Easton and the state park is in Easton. Oh, okay. Um, but, you know, I've, I've said a few stories in Beverly where I grew up and, you know, the novel I'm sort of working, I'm working on now actually has quite a bit of a music uh, connection to it that maybe we can talk about if you want. But, you know, I've said yep. it in Beverly and I promise. Means, yeah. So, no, I, I don't know. I love using New England partly it goes back to my hating research. So, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit easier for me to, to, you know, to write these stories set where I live. You know, part of it is, especially if it's a horror story, I mean, New England is almost like the stereotype of horror stories. So like in some ways you, you can do some fun things with reader expectations in that way. Um, you know, you can either lean into it or you can sort of like flip it on its head or undermine it. I don't know. Man, that's that's interesting to hear. That's that's funny though. You're like that you hate doing research so much. I w- <laughs> I would think that that would be the fun part, but I'm kind of a yeah, I'm a homework kind of guy. Yeah. Um, I'm just not comfortable. I don't feel like in my element. I mean, I like learning stuff. It's just I don't know. I wasn't I never learned, you know, I, like I said I was a math major, so I wasn't like in classes that where I had to write papers and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. Just the research part of it to me just feels like I don't know if I'm doing this right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing fine. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you want to talk about uh, what's coming up next, dude, I would love to hear that because I, um, I through, uh, through, through the pandemic, uh, obviously everybody got thrown for a loop. Um, but I, I held a, a Kickstarter because I had always wanted to write a book called Written in Stoned, uh, which will be coming out <laughs> next year. Uh, just kind of, as kind of a tongue in cheek memoir. Uh, I meant to do it much later in life, but um, yeah. the, the universe kind of forced my hand and I just, I don't know, I thought it'd be a good idea, but I didn't know if anybody would want to read it. So I kind of, turned the tables and I, I kind of put it out there as a Kickstarter and just said, you know, if enough people want it, then I will write it, but I don't want to spend, you know, however long it's going to take to write this thing. And then, right. you know, five people buy it. I mean, I, I, I love you five people, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, uh, but, but people came through and, and so they funded it. And then I was like, fuck, I have to write a book. And, uh, so yeah, doing research on like the legalities of what I can say about other people or not or, uh, or libel or whatever that was kind of like something that uh, that's that's a slippery slope that I'm going to have to tread. But um, I, I, I had mentioned something to you about it. You said that your next novel uh, was going to be in memoir form. Is that is that still holding true? Or uh, do you want to yeah. talk about yeah what's coming up at all? Sure. So yeah, this book is called The Paul Bearers Club. Um, it's being written sort of tongue in cheek as a as a as a faux memoir. 
because uh, pretty early in the book, like there's a joke that this is reading like a novel as opposed to a memoir. <laughs> um, so anyway, the the main character is named Art Barbara, which is just a, a name that cracks me up, <laughs> especially in a Boston accent. Just like Art, Art Barbara. <laughs> yeah, and that's it's not that's and that's not this character's real name. You know, he tells you this on the first page, like this is what he's naming himself for this, you know, quote unquote memoir, um, which is you know very you know very loose stand-in for me. So. I don't know. It's it's been kind of fun to write, which makes me a little scared because you know maybe that's a bad sign. Uh, <laughs> but you know, so it's much different than the last two novels, which you know we talked about were like much tighter time constraints. And this starts in like 1988. It'll go up to about maybe like 2018 ish. Um, but basically, it's a story of this guy, um, you know, who was a loser in high, you know, self uh, self identifying loser in high school. And he started this weird pallbearers club as a way to get extracurricular activities for his college applications. Uh, so, like, he and whoever else he could get to, to go with him would volunteer at a local funeral home to serve, like, wakes and, and funerals for homeless or elderly that don't have a lot of, uh, don't have a lot of, you know, living relatives. Yeah, so it's kind of sweet, but it's also still kind of weird and morbid. I was going to say, that's dark, um, bro. That's dark. Yeah. So, like, so this this woman who's slightly older than him, he's not sure how much older, sort of ends up joining the club, and she becomes, like, this weird, maybe supernatural figure, you know, throughout his life. And the music connection is, um, I spent a lot of the book talking about, like, how much music means to this character, and he's a big Husker Du and punk fan, and when he's, after he gets through high school and in the sort of middle years of his life, he's, he's just played in a lot of bad... <laughs> A string of bad punk bands that don't go anywhere. Uh, uh, so anyway, I get to talk a lot about music, you know, that I enjoy and like. And you know, hopefully, I'm, my hope is that the book is kind of funny uh, for most of it, and hopefully, kind of scary in, in the parts that are supposed to be. Um, oh, you know, so not like you know, typically, if you say like a horror comedy, like if you think like a Hollywood horror comedy, it's the horror parts or the parts that you're sort of laughing at. Yeah. And I'm hoping more. This is hey, this is you know, it's. It's a humorous situation for most of it, but the you know the horror parts aren't the, the, the funny parts. Mm-hmm. I guess the other part I would add to it is this other mysterious woman who's you know this big part of his life. At the end of every chapter, she sort of com- she she writes in, she comments on the memoir because she sort of got a hold of it. <laughs> she's commenting at the end of each chapter, saying, "Oh, this is bullshit," and maybe she's even like writing like margins and stuff, like writing within the margins of the story. So I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully my publisher will let me do that. I can't wait to to read it. Do you mean like almost like um like picturesque where that's it's like actually written in on the side? You know what I mean? And like notes and stuff like that. Yeah, that's what I hope. Uh, you know, I've seen a few books that where you've seen like you know I've seen a few books where you can have like what looks like handwriting in the margins. Where it mm-hmm. I mean, I think if worse comes to worse, we would do um, you know treat it as footnotes, like her comments in the margins. Uh huh. Um, you know, we would probably have to do that for like the ebook version because of how ebooks get put on your screen but yeah. I'm, I'm hoping i'm hoping for the print version that we can do like what looks like handwriting in the margin sure because i mean we'll uh, uh what, what's his name uh mark uh daniel uh with um house of leaves yeah i mean that yeah. book was crazy i mean it, you could you could print anything it should, it should oh, be yeah. able to be done yeah um yeah it's just a matter i guess how much work they want to put in, in right, design. Yeah. You, you know? should totally fight for that I, I think it would add a nice touch um yeah that's cool uh, I can't wait to read this book. I think it's going to be amazing. Um, Thanks. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. It won't be out till 22. It's, it's due to my publisher in May. I think I'm like two thirds of the way through. So time wise, I, I feel okay. Awesome. I'm not, I'm not panicking yet, but yeah. <laughs> 
That's rad. So um, how about you? Have you started, can I ask, have you started the memoir? I, I have started the memoir. I realized yeah. very quickly that it is a lot harder to write a book uh, <laughs> than it seems. <laughs> uh, and also, um, I sort of gave myself a page limit and um, a word limit and uh -huh. thinking that that would, I, I would like hit that goal and have a book, but I'm quickly realizing that it's going to take much more than that to pare it down to that limit. So mm -hmm. I'm basically, I, I sort of started trying to write it as it would read, but I just, I threw that out the window and just started throwing words on the page and I'll just go back and comb over it later. So I'm doing yeah. the first draft right now. Um, I would like the, uh, you know, I, I'm definitely the least famous person to ever try to write <laughs> a memoir. So I want to make it just kind of fun. Yeah. And uh, I don't take myself too seriously, uh, but I do, I just, I do have a lot of crazy stories and I, um, I have a, just, I have a unique, um, take on the music industry because every band does it differently. And, um, this right. is very much just my, my 25% point of view from this one band that was around during this really weird time for a long time. So it's, uh, <laughs> I have a lot to say. I just don't know exactly how it's going to end up yet. So yeah, I'm, I'm in the process of doing that. Nice. Um, We'll see if I write more. I don't know. I kind of wanted to to make it less linear than I think it's going to end up being. But uh -huh. um, I think I think I have to tell my story first um, before right. I go off writing other things. Some of my favorite books, um, you know, like uh, for, from people that weren't authors, uh, like uh, Anthony Bourdain or mm -hmm. Lenny Bruce, uh, any, anybody like that, you know, like they, they really had to like tell their story first before they went off and wrote anything else kind of crazier, but we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I gave myself a year to do it. So I think I can, nice. I think I can knock it out, but, um, do, uh, would you mind, uh, we don't have to, if you don't want to, but uh, talk about your profession at all, your sure, actual yeah, profession. Yeah. Cause uh, you are yeah. a, a math teacher, uh, I am. High, high, so, uh, high school, right? Yes. Yeah. Do you ever have any, um, students find out who you are uh, as a writer or, or, any, or any, any parent fans or any parents that get concerned when they find out the kind of shit that you're writing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if there's concerns, I haven't had any said to me directly, but oh, oh yeah, I mean, that's that, good. I got to a point where, um, you know, my classroom, I've got Stephen King posters up and I've printed out the, the nice things he said about my books and I have all that <laughs> stuff on the walls. Okay. Yeah, cool. So they know, um, you know, and I've had, I've had a few parent teacher conferences where like the mom was like, yeah, okay. You know, my kid's doing fine. Let's talk about this book I just read. Uh, <laughs> so that's been kind of funny. So now my school has been, you know, all things considered, very cool about the whole thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've been, it's funny. I started teaching. I, when I started teaching, I started writing. So, like, they're both so, like, intertwined to me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I do have the goal of probably, you know, writing full time at some point, maybe even soon. Um you know, a part of me is a little bit scared to not have that safety net because I, I think one of the things when I talked about not really having to worry about like the sales teams and stuff like that earlier. I mean, part of it is in the back of my head, I always like, you know, what? I have this job as a teacher. It gives me my shitty health insurance. I can write what I want to write, not what. Not what like I would maybe feel pressured into because I needed to put like, you know, food on the table or pay a mortgage. Yeah. Bill, you know what I mean? And, and that, that's no shade at, at writers who you know, are making a living solely on their writing. Um, to me, like I greatly admire them. Like I, I honestly don't know if I could handle that pressure. Um, you know, I'm going to try to find out at some point, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, it'd be easier, obviously if a movie gets made, I think if that happens, then it probably will. But, um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I like teaching, you know, I like writing too. It is getting a little bit harder to juggle both as things get busier, but yeah, being a, a math teacher too, it's, it's not like you're an English teacher yeah. that also writes but it's like you that has to be like a real break like a mental 
like separation for you. It's like going from numbers to words. Yeah. No, I do think that's actually very helpful because I don't, you know, it's not that I'm not tired when I come home from school, but you know, I've used probably a different part of my head, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, I can uh, just even like in my brief experience, like more than a decade ago of being like a, a slush pile editor, they call it in a magazine where you read, you know, stories that people submit. Um, you know, that was hard. That was like using the same writing part of my brain, you know, and I was like, okay, I've read all these crappy stories. You know, some of them are really good. Now I have to go try to write. Um, in one sense, it was a great lesson for me as a writer to learn not only what worked as a story, but what didn't work by reading other people's mistakes. Um, but yeah, but if, you know, if I was doing that every day, you know, with, with high school kids, I think that would be tough. Yeah, I bet. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've never written before. So I, <laughs> I'm kind of learning that right now where I'm like, ah, oh, shit, is this even going to be good? I don't know. I really need an editor. Because at first I was like, oh, I'll just, you know, I had somebody because the book's about weed. I was like, I'll have an editor in Keefe. This will uh-huh. be funny. But no, I, I really think I need a real editor uh, to yeah help me through this. Um, yeah. We'll, well, we'll, I mean, yeah, I think. Happens. Sure. I mean, I think your instinct is right. I mean, obviously, you're a creative guy. So I think that's more than half the battle. Like, I never learned how to write. I just sort of, I learned by reading a ton of books and, and just sort of doing it. And totally, yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. doing it again. Um, yeah, I would recommend, since it's a little bit of a weed book, like a, a friend of mine, Mark Haskell-Smith, is a wonderful writer. He wrote, oh, I'm going to space on the name of his book. I'm such an asshole. Uh, well, he wrote a book about, going, like, investigating nudist sort of places, which was really funny, called Naked uh-huh. at Lunch. But the, book, <laughs> but the book before that, oh. I'm sorry, Mark. The book before that was because he's a big uh, weed advocate. And he essentially, I sort of traveled the world, you know, testing different strains and talking about sort of weed culture, too. So, oh, The Heart of Dankness. That's I'm sorry. That's what it is. The Heart of Dankness. <laughs> and he's a, he's a very funny guy, too. So I, I think you'd really enjoy. Uh, it's not quite a memoir, but it is sort of a memoir of his sort of year, year and a half, two years, you know, just going around. I, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to read smoking. that book. Uh, yeah. that's, that sounds amazing. Um, it's, it's, yeah, the, the weed thing is funny cause it's almost legal everywhere now or even like right. decriminal, decriminalized in most places. And, uh, yeah, when we grew up, you had to get on a, you know, a bus and go meet some, you know, <laughs> dude named Claydell and uh-huh. yeah, you got a $10 bag of the, mostly seeds and stems. And it's, it's just, you end up in such sketchy situations that you would never have to end up in, uh, if, if everything was just legal. It's a plan for Christ's sake. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's funny just seeing it change. I kind of want to talk about some of that too, uh, in, in the book, but, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's funny. So yeah, Mark's book is cool because it it's, I think it was written right before some of the, right before sort of the rush of so many States legalizing. I think obviously California had legalized at that point, uh-huh. but you know, it was before, you know, like it is now. So no, yeah, it's definitely a good read. That's awesome. Um, as far as, like earlier when we were talking about uh, family and friends having a hard time reading your books or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Have you, especially considering some of the things you do to your characters, have you had any, have you lost any friends or had, had no. any friends like be like, you're not allowed to be around my kid anymore. <laughs> <laughs> anything like that. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it is, I do feel like I, I, I live this weird double life because uh-huh. at school, you know, the kids know, but you know, I'm their math teacher. They don't, you know, they still don't think I'm cool, which is right. fine. <laughs> you know, in my lowest moments as a teacher, I've said to like a class, like when they're giving me shits, like you don't understand outside of here, there are a lot of people that think I'm cool. <laughs> um, so I don't know, like, you know, school, it's just, you know, it's a private school. You know, I just sort of do my thing. Um, and yeah, like the writing doesn't really come up in the day to day. And then like, mm-hmm. you know, when I leave, 
you know, if I go to writers conventions, obviously this is before COVID life, you know, I'd go to a bunch during the year and it was just like, wow, this is, you know, I almost feel like I'm a, a person <laughs> with one foot in like two weird different worlds and not two mm-hmm. feet in there. And that, that could be a little, I don't know, it messes with my head sometimes. Um, I enjoy it. I mean, I've, I've gotten to meet so many cool and different, you know, kinds of people. I feel like, I feel like I have a little, at least a little bit of a, I don't know, enlarged perspective because of it all, um, you know, whatever that means. But no, I've never had any, <laughs> I've never had anybody um, disfriend me or disown me over, you know, most of, you know, so many of my friends now are, are other horror writers or horror readers. So they yeah. decided to fight yeah. them and kill them or something. Um, <laughs> hey, you can kill me anytime, bud. <laughs> yeah. No, the only, I guess the only bummer recently, you know, my dad's a sweet guy, but unfortunately he's, his brain has been taken over by uh, the misinformation that we've been talking about. So yeah. his, his comment on Survivor Song was like, oh, you know, I loved it, but you shouldn't have had the politics in there. And that was like, you know, two lines about Trump, you know, shitting the bed with the response to this epidemic. So, yeah, for real. I don't know. That was a bummer. But, you know, most of the time everyone's fine, including family. You know, yeah. they, they pretend to be horrified. Like, this is them. I'm like, yes and no, it's not them. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, yeah, sometimes I wonder, like, do, as we get older, do we just get dumb at some point? Does a, does a, <laughs> does, is there a switch that flips and all of a sudden you just turn into a complete moron? Uh, I hope not. Uh, I like to yeah, think that we'll all still have it, uh, uh, at that age. Yeah. But. I mean, it's such a bigger top, like, you know, I think obviously in this country, religion is, is, if not the problem, a problem. Yeah. You know, and maybe granted this is reflecting my personal biases, but. I don't know. Like after I got to go and I'm sure you've, you've been with the band. Like when I got to go to England for the first time, just talking to Europeans in general, like face to face, you know, it sort of occurred to me. It's like, holy crap, I live in a really like uh, religious country. Like I never viewed it that way because I just don't, you know, <laughs> I don't do religion. You know, I don't yeah. go to church on Sundays and, you know, my kids aren't baptized and it's just not a part of our lives. But mm-hmm. just to like step out of the country and, and just hear the, the conversation, whether it be political or cultural from, you know, you know, another Western country that, but that's just not the U S it just really made me step back and go, wow. It's like, this is a part of this country. that's like, it's like the Taliban. It's, um, it's, it's crazy that more you know, people the don't see it for the what Taliban. it is. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and just because it's like the word, you know, cult gets thrown around, but it's, it's a cult just like anything else. It just happens to be the biggest cult in the world. And you know, right. the, when you're in that cult, it's like people just turn a, you know, blind eye to that fact. They're like, no, but we all believe that. I was like, yeah, well, it's just, you're all crazy. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, know obviously there are, there are responsible people who, who practice religion. You know, some of my best friends are religious, but, um, it's kind of, it's kind of like but in terms of like how it's the, the tentacles have just so warped yeah. sort of the values, the values of America, um, and how, how it, it gets taken advantage of to, to political agendas. It's just, yeah, it's just horrifying and frightening. And I don't know what the solution is. So and I, I don't, to another country. you know, I don't <laughs> like to demonize things because it's, it's, it's like, I mean, don't get me wrong, like fuck the police and all that, but I do like the idea of cops and I, I do enjoy police stories and things like that. But, but the, the real police, I'm like, you know, uh, but like with religion, yeah, it's like, I do like really enjoy the imagery and you can't, um, knock the, the huge influence it's had on art and culture and everything worldwide but oh, then sure. when, it, when it gets taken past the point of. A, a, a healthy guide to help you get through life to, you know, a, a final truth. That's yeah. It just becomes a real problem. 
Yeah. Like, but, again, I don't mean to denigrate, you know, things. No, no, no. It's just I, more, you know, like what you're saying, it's how me, we feel. Like, the problem is when it, when it, when it turns to governance, like there should, there is, uh-huh. there should be no role for religion within governance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that should just be an obvious thing. When it's not. Yeah. Where would you move? If you could, if you could go right now, where would you go? <laughs> uh, I've been trying to talk my life into, uh, New Zealand, but you know, realistically that's really far away. Um, it's windy too. You know, I, I don't like yeah. the wind. <laughs> most of my most of my friends and family live in in this area, and I'm like, well, you know, Ireland is like a short four hour flight from yeah from here. That sounds it's nice. Be manageable, and you don't you have know, to pay I, taxes there as an artist. So yeah, oh, really? you keep oh. all your money. Yeah, yeah. That's why uh, that's why Bono has uh, so much money to give is because he doesn't pay a lick of tax. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would go to Spain in a heartbeat right now. Like, that was always my um, my backup plan is to sell everything, move to Spain, and uh, you can't even do that now. Uh, so yeah. fine, whatever. No, well, we'll get there one now, day. Now, one of my high school regrets was t- was taking French because when I was in middle school, the scariest teacher in the school was a Spanish teacher. She was like the, the teacher that would <laughs> yell at you and twist your ear and stuff like that. I was like, oh, I'm not taking Spanish. I'm not taking Spanish. <laughs> so, you know, I wish. So I now I, I know only one lousy language. So that is a yeah. definite regret. So I can't. Uh, that's the thing. It's like if you, I, I don't want to move to a country. I don't know the language. Uh, oh, you'll pick it up quick. You'll pick. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Um, have you ever. Um... Did you do a proper book tour ever? Or is it more like just like flying conventions and things like that? Um, I was supposed to have one this summer, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, but, uh, womp, womp. sorry to bring yeah, it up. That's okay. No, but yeah, I guess like mini tours, although I, I have one in England. That was my British publisher, you know, took me around for a week, you know, it was like trained to, you know, went to five different cities and I guess that was sort of my first old school book tour. You know, most that's- of the time, like in the U S I'm going, hitting cities in new England and New York city and, you know, maybe some other city, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, no, the England yeah. tour was, that was, it was so much fun. It was one of my, you know, one of the best experiences I've ever had. Is it like a, is it like a rock and roll tour where you just like stay up drinking whiskey and, and getting crazy till 5 a.m. and then wake up at 8 a.m. and go to the next place? <laughs> uh, it wasn't five. It wasn't quite 5 a.m., but no, there was a lot of going to pubs and, you know, drinking with other writers. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't like tearing up hotel rooms. <laughs> I did on one night end up having what they call uh, uh, a traditional British dinner of just uh, of of crisps and ale. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because it was funny. I was in Bristol and I'd done an event. Oh, God, I love close Bristol. To like, it was close to like 1030. It was just a weekday, too. And so uh, my publicist, Lydia, you know, who's become a, like a dear friend, uh, she was like, hey, you know, there was a group of us. Oh, we should try this pub over here. Like, so we sort of walked by like a chain restaurant, which is fine. I didn't want to go to a chain. So we went to this pub and it said, Hey, you're going to serve on the window. It said serving food until 1030. And it was like almost 10 at that point. So we sat down. It was like, Oh, can we order food? And like, Oh, sorry. It was slow. So the chef decided to leave. It's like, what? You know, the one American part of me was like, that would never happen. I know that's pretty <laughs> standard for, yeah, yeah, for England. honestly. Um, yeah. So like, well, so they just ordered, you know, we just got a bunch of, potato chip bags and, and beer. And when I, you know, went back to the hotel later, I convinced them to, to give me a ham and cheese sandwich before I went up to bed. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a really fun night. Uh, it was an amazing night. That's, that's great, man. I, uh, well, hopefully you can do another one, uh, when this new book comes out. Uh, but until then, um, I just, I don't want to take up all, all your time. Thank you so much for, um, sitting down with us and, and gabbing about all your books. I'm a huge fan and, uh, it means a lot. Thank you so much. No, thank and, you. Uh, Anytime. 
Yeah, of course. And um, yeah, your uh, your first two novels are, are getting reissued. What do you say? One's coming out in January. And uh, yes. when's the other one? When's the other one? Uh, so out? the little in, so in the U.S. the Little Sleep is coming out January twenty sixth, and in April the second one, the follow up with the same character, No Sleep to Wonderland, is coming out in April twenty first, I think. Uh, and then the and then the U.K. they're publishing both books together in an omnibus at the same time, in early April. That's awesome. Anybody out there, if you haven't read them, please pick one of these up. They are fantastic. I would not lie to you. I promise. Um, yeah, and uh, thanks again, Paul. I really, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Kyle. Yes, sir. Uh, you want to play us out? I don't know. I, I, I usually, uh, we have musicians on. They they oh. pick a song, but uh, I don't want to, <laughs> I, I, I guess I could put a chapter from one of your audio books on. <laughs> yeah, I don't have, yeah, got nothing to play. Oh, actually, it's funny. My guitar is almost in reach, but no one wants to hear me play. Oh, okay, Especially fine. when it's not plugged in. We'll let you off the hook. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right, man. Well, uh, we'll talk soon. All right. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks so much for tuning into the highway this week. A big shout out to Reverend Guitars, Railhammer Pickups, and Earthquaker Devices. If you liked what you heard, you can follow where you can follow, subscribe where you can subscribe, and if you want to go one step further, you can support us on Patreon at The Highway with Kyle Shutt. For a few bucks a month, you can help us keep this party going, get early access to next week's episode, and even get yourself a shout out. <laughs>